Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Of course, the center of federal politics in this country. And one of the things that has been written about a lot over the past few years is the rise of consumer activism as a political expression. And I think part of it goes back to the Supreme Court decision in the United States, the Citizens United case. But it it, it seems to me that there's a lot more popular attention, a lot more media attention on the idea of people being able to vote with their wallets. Where you spend money, how you spend money is a form of political expression. And I know for me, it's something that I've thought about given where I've lived in the country, that I've lived and voted in writings that tend to not change. Uh, Even if a government changes or the incumbent isn't running, the party that represents that writing hasn't changed a lot. So it's something that I've been pretty conscious of in my life that if your vote isn't necessarily going to lead to change, what other ways can you express your political opinions, express yourself politically, and perhaps even elicit some form of change or get things more aligned with what you believe? And certainly money has been an effort towards that. And sometimes that leads to positive changes. And in other cases, there's examples where it uh, has not quite led to positive changes. But even though it's something that has gotten a little more media attention over the past few years, it is not a new idea that consumers are activists or can be activists and that how you spend money and the way in which materialism can govern forms of political expression. That is not a new idea. And it is the subject of a new book called Radical Housewives, Price Wars and Food Politics in Mid-20th Century Canada. This is by Julie Gard, who is a professor in the Department of History and Labor Studies at the University of Manitoba. Really great book. Looks at how housewives organizations, community organizations, really push the government towards things like price controls from the late 30s into the early Cold War years. Just a fascinating book. And I had the opportunity to talk with Julie Gard earlier. So let's get right to that conversation. Okay, and I am joined now by Julie Gard from History and Labor Studies at the University of Manitoba, joining us from Winnipeg today. Julie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the book. Again, the title is Radical Housewives, Price Wars and Food Politics in Mid-20th Century Canada. And Julie, let's start out by talking about the Housewives Consumer Association. This is a group amongst several that I've heard of in, in my studies in the 1930s, these community-based activist groups, but obviously you're the expert here. So who who were the members of the Housewives Consumer Association and what was the overall purpose and goal of the organization? It's a little bit of a complicated answer. Um, so the Housewives Consumers Association was an actual organization, but they were also 
they fostered um, a movement. So there was activist uh, consumer citizen movement that was part of what they were. So their members were uh, probably relatively small. It's very hard to know exactly how many people were in organizations like this because these are not people who kept very good records. And if they had, they wouldn't end up in archives. So there were particular organizations in cities across Canada that were loosely connected to the Toronto group, which was the initializing group. So the organization itself is kind of a little bit amorphous. Uh, So there's actual organizations with membership lists and dues and so on that people paid and other groups that felt that they were part of this organization in some vague way and looked to the Toronto women for direction and, you know, with the initializing of campaigns and so on. So it isn't exactly a national organization per se. They tried twice to create a national organization that would be, everybody would be formally affiliated to the same thing. And that just never came off for a couple of different reasons. Time wasn't right in both cases. But, you know, what you have is the one in Toronto, the Toronto Housewives Consumer Association, the one in Montreal, the Consumers League out in Vancouver, the BC Consumers League, I think. So they called themselves slightly different things, but they were, they all felt that they were part of the same organization, but very loosely constructed. And how much does the era matter to the way in which these organizations were constructed and the general inability to create an overall national organization? You know, the the 1930s, of course, were in the Depression. There's so much going on in terms of relief programs, unemployment, the real debate going on across the country of social programs and versus free market capitalism. How much does that diversity, the geographic diversity, and the way in which those types of issues played out across the country, because of course the the depression is very different, say if you're in Saskatchewan versus if you're in Nova Scotia, there's different issues at play. So how much does the realities of the 1930s shape the way these local grassroots organizations are created? That's a good question. It's a big question. Um, so, um, so the 1930s, obviously, so this, they emerged in 1937 initially out of a group organized in Toronto, but the nucleus of these groups was already in place. Left groups, mostly communist women, communist party women who were activists, community activists in their local regions had been agitating for more state intervention to ameliorate the suffering of ordinary people during these really difficult years. And people really, really were suffering. Our depression in Canada was, as I'm sure you know, worse, in fact, than in many other places, and including in the United States. So they had serious grievances about uh, the lack of government intervention. Government was not interested and in, didn't feel it could intervene to do anything to help reduce the suffering. So the Regional differences, I think, were it's, it actually is quite quite uh, distinct. So in BC, you had a very active uh, communist left, and so people like Effie Jones were involved in uh, organizing. They'd already been doing things. They'd already been supporting unemployed men coming down from the camp. So they were already, you know, on the ground uh, doing things. So they, when the opportunity came to conceive of themselves as being part of a nationwide movement of activist consumers, they adopted that. They 
became that from whatever they had been before. Women in Winnipeg, similarly, another place where there was an active left, uh, particularly a communist left, organized again against you know high prices and asking the state to intervene to ensure that, for instance, that milk was available to children. So families on relief, on, on welfare during the Depression, lobbied for, through the housewives, for adequate milk, milk being perceived at that time as an important part of everybody's diet in a way that we don't quite think of it the same way today. And of course, Toronto was an important center, lots of you know activist women there, lots of uh, women on the left doing these things. Their issues were a bit different. They you know, wanted uh, lower gas prices uh, for house, household heating. They actually engaged in some pretty direct action with the gas company, uh, marching up the stairs and confronting the manager and so on to try and bring gas prices down within the range that ordinary people could afford. And there wasn't that much happening on the East Coast in the 1930s. I haven't found evidence of it. And so during the 30s, their issues certainly became, you know, they were different. They were related to the problems of the Depression. But as you say, different in place to place. I think there was some in Saskatchewan as well. So prairie uh, people suffered enormously during the Depression, but that was a very small movement that didn't really uh, coalesce into much until after the war. As part of these efforts, what was the main goal? Is it possible to summarize the raison d'etre of these groups in, in one digestible phrase? I guess what they, if you to sort of boil it down to the essence of what they wanted, they wanted the state to take uh, more responsibility for the well-being of ordinary people, of ordinary households. It was clear that the state was beginning, certainly in the 1930s and very much more in the 1940s, uh, the state apparatus in Canada became much bigger quite quickly in the 1940s during the war, during World War II. But it was pretty clear also that the state that was um, intervening in the economy was doing it in the interests of supporting business. It's not a terrible thing, but um, they argued that business interests were taking priority over the interests of households and, uh, in fact, damaging their ability to survive. So milk prices were, the, the government intervened to put a floor under milk prices in very in province by province with milk control boards, raising the price of milk, which had often been very low when there was a surplus of milk, to the point that ordinary people felt that it was hard to get enough of it. So I guess if there had one sort of overall objective, it was to hold governments to account and to make them attend to and respect the well-being of ordinary people as a government responsibility. So this was a time when the idea of social citizenship is beginning to take take effect. There's a sort of a, a notion of social citizenship abroad in the, in the in the polity. And they're saying, well, yes, so we are social citizens and we are entitled to having the state intervene on our behalf and not just on behalf of business. So I guess that's their sort of overall objective. Now, part of that, the, as you're speaking, that I'm thinking about is wondering who is actually making this case. And I'm struck by some criticisms of other social movements that I've read about, the criticism being that the people who are participating tend to be of the upper middle class and have the resources to be able to engage in certain levels of protest and activism. And in the case of these women, 
what is their economic background? Who are they? And what is their background that puts them in this position to, to take up this mantle? There's a variety of people here. There's like the movement of the people. So they're like any other social movement. There's a core group of people who stay involved and monitor the situation and are ready to um, react to circumstances, situations that, that arise from time to time. And then there's there the great larger group of their supporters and people who will participate in the campaigns that they organize. So there's a real difference there. I mean, that's I think almost every social movement works like that. So it was a very relatively small group of people at its at the space who were doing sort of all the legwork and are there on the spot day to day. And then the people who they tap, they mobilize when it's time to create a, a mass movement. So the people, uh, the women at the core of this organization were mostly women on the left, a lot of them of the Ukrainian and Jewish left. So like places like Winnipeg, uh, particularly where, and I think the prairies in general, where um, the Ukrainian left was very strong and the Jewish left, they would be those women. And it's interesting to think of them having time to do this kind of work. They, they organized their lives around activism. These were mostly working class women. Some of them also were workers who uh, worked for pay, but um, they called themselves housewives. Generally, that was a term used to refer to any married woman. And often married women were not part of the paid labor force, although some of these women were often if they had two or three kids, that's what they did. But they they organized their, their domestic and, and familial responsibilities around what they perceived to be their political obligations. So when they went off to organize a protest or have a baby parade or something to protest, uh, you know, the price of milk or the price of meat or to organize people around some other demand. They combined those responsibilities by putting the kids in the in the baby carriage, bringing the toddlers along and, uh, you know, taking to the streets in protest. So they mostly there are very few middle class women at the core of the organization. Sometimes they were supporters. Uh, these were working class women on the left and they had community supports. They helped each other out. They probably didn't get a lot of help from their husbands on this, but they uh, they made time because this was important to them. This was their lives. I mean, they were involved in all kinds of, of political activities, but this was what they did with their lives. They were deeply committed activists and working class women with a working class sensibility and working class experience. Now, you say you don't think they would have gotten a lot of support from their husbands. Why do you think that is? Because a lot of what they're advocating for seems like it'd be helpful to the family. Price controls and, and making sure that you have things that are available at, at reasonable prices, that that seems like a reasonable thing that would benefit the entire family. So so why do you, do you not think there'd be that support there from their husbands? Well, I think their husbands thought it was a great idea and, you know, we're happy to have them do it as long as, you know, dinner arrived on the table at the right time and so on. Um, their husbands were probably mostly on the left, too. One of the things that certainly is clear about this period is how very gender specific things were. I think we'd be surprised to look back and, you know, read the newspapers of the time and the things that people said openly about whose responsibility was what and so on. So food prices were perceived on the left as elsewhere to be gendered female. So these women um, had a kind of you know, social license to be able to protest in ways that were would have been thought of as um, unseemly under other circumstances, but specifically because 
uh, household management, household economic management was very much perceived to be a female responsibility. So it, I guess it was a double-edged sword. They had the opportunity to do this and, and uh, you know, not be, you know, at least initially, not criticized for it, in fact, celebrated for it. But at the other, on the other hand, so well, you know, their leftist husbands might have been um, you know, going on strike or otherwise protesting for higher wages. The women were focused on the, 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 um, the food prices and other household prices and even, you know, the political parties themselves and particularly the Communist Party. Um, perceived food prices to be a women's issue. Um, it's, so it's, um, it seems bizarre, I think, because obviously it affects the entire household. But I think the, the gender descriptiveness of, uh, of the times is really evident in uh, the, this. This was an uh, area of protest that was specifically assigned to women. And certainly in my research on old radio in the 1930s, there is a clear definition of what is considered a "quote unquote" women's program, and uh, the material that is on that is included in a women's program is very specific to the home, as you say. It's about cooking, cleaning, really the domestic sphere, and the only time you hear women's voices are on those issues. Primetime programming talking about national or regional politics—it's all man male voices, and you see that clear distinguishing in the public space of of who has access to various discussions and, and, and issues. And that leads me, though, to the next question of how much support did the group have broadly? And, you know, obviously, they would have gotten some support from the left and other leftist organizations, but did they have a seat at the table with political leaders, with policymakers with folks who could implement these things? Like how far did they get in pushing forward their proposals? The vision women like this, these women in particular promoted, was uh, remarkably popular at the time. I think it's not very well known or not remembered that Canada was Canada, the social climate in general, the political climate in the 30s and 40s leaned very much to the left. I mean, this is the emergence of the the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the precursor to the NDP. The Communist Party was at its most popular, was not the most popular party, was not most people didn't support the Communist Party, but many people did. Many people were certainly perceived it to be a political actor as part of the political milieu that uh, was acceptable. So uh, they had, well, demands for lower prices during a period of time when uh, wages were stagnant or or falling. Unemployment was up to one third of wage earners were out of work. When during the depression, when uh, relief was wildly inadequate, they were incredibly popular. People thought, yes, the state ought to do something about this. I mean, that's Canadians think that still. When we see a problem of that magnitude, we look to the state to do something to to correct that. We, we think of the state as, in some ways, at least benevolent and, and answerable to us as citizens. So their demands, uh, according to Gallup polls, which was a new thing at the time, a huge proportion of the Canadian population endorsed their demands. So they might not have wanted to join a left movement, but they certainly agreed with the kinds of things that the housewives were, were, were calling on state the state to do. So they, they didn't exactly get a seat at the table with policymakers, though they would have liked that. And they asked for that specifically. But they did get enormous support from the mainstream press, which was very helpful to them. So they got uh, they broadcast their campaigns wildly through just news coverage. 
news the news reporters agreed with them apparently um and gave them very favorable coverage and then they of course had some very effective um, protest strategies using protest theater in various ways you know marching down the street as i mentioned with baby carriages and demanding a reduction in milk price also of course dressed and in every manner as uh, you know very normatively feminine so um, appealing um, appearing to be generally well behaved respectable women who had a legitimate grievance with which everyone could agree so it was it was quite remarkable i think that you know they sort of pushed the political consensus or helped to push the political consensus leftward because of their broad appeal that's interesting though that you you mentioned some of the strategies because it almost feels like there's perhaps an inherent conflict in their using their femininity and their role as housewives and and mothers as a way to gain attention while also trying to enter into a space where women were not really allowed or or were there were attempts to exclude women from that space so it almost seems like to get into that space you'd want to shed the femininity and that housewife role or perception but instead they're leaning into it it, it seems like uh, something that on first blush wouldn't necessarily come across as a successful strategy in this era. Well, yeah, there's in fact a you know, significant debate in the feminist historiography about you know maternalism as a strategy and whether it's just self-defeating in the long run or undermines your case. So it's complicated, I would say. Uh, certainly, uh, there's lots of instances of women doing this in history. Of, of you know, this is what they, this is where their legitimacy lies. So this is like, I guess, to you know. The weapons of the weak comes to mind. You know, they're they're power relatively powerless politically, and this is femininity and respectability and maternalism are weapons at their disposal, and so they use them. And the housewives certainly did, uh, basically, you know, turning those uh, expectations on their head. So finding their way into the political discourse, reshaping the political discourse by framing it as something that any responsible, caring wife and mother would do. Um, so it, it didn't challenge gender norms to do this. You know, you, ha- you have to admit that, like, they, you know, they we might see them as some way as proto-feminists, and they did think that women ought to have a bigger role in public life, but they certainly weren't doing what feminists today would demand, that, you know, we sort of shed these, you know, very limiting gender ascriptions and, and sort of become just people without too much of this of this extra baggage. That was not what they were doing. How much does that change over time with what's going on just socially during the time where they're active? Because, you know, 1937 is very different from 1943, just socially and what's going on, especially the perception of gender roles, at least the way it gets written about generally, is that things change during the war, the the way in which women interact with the economy changes. So is there any change over time in their arguments and the way they present their case? During the war, so 1943 is different from 1946 and 1937. Uh, There's a lot of change in this period. This is a period of like tumultuous social change, right? Like the world is just radically remade in so many ways. So like during the war, they uh, certainly switched strategies, at least. I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I thought they just adapted to the times 
And I don't think that they were particularly insincere in any of these things. But they became supporters of the war effort and uh, engaged in price checking for the government. So oddly enough, what happened during the war when the Canadian government introduced control of prices in order to maintain sort of low inflation rates and not end up with a huge post-war debt. So it's really a state policy designed for very different purposes. Um, but they became volunteer price checkers, just like women in other countries, to monitor prices, the retail prices, and try and hold uh, retailers to account. So they became, in that way, kind of super patriots um, in a way that is quite different from what they were doing when they were challenging the state in the 30s. But the state was doing during the war years, in some ways, exactly what they demanded that it do in the 1930s. But then, of course, by the time war is over, there was a pushback after the war. You're right. Women certainly were doing things that they had never done before. They were in industry. They were in the military. They were in public life. They were earning money and so on, being supporters of their families. And there's a huge pushback at the end of war to get women to go back into the domestic sphere. So I think they become, if anything, more overtly feminist at that point because they're pushing on the other side to say women have a right to be involved in public life and at that point, their popularity was enormous. They were closely associated with the very popular price control movement during wartime. Why would that not be popular with ordinary people? They'd never been so well off, right? They'd never eaten so so well, those on the, on the lower end of the economic scale. So they were fantastically popular at that point, and they had a lot of legitimacy. But then, of course, their tactics uh, their, their tactics were related to that, and then they encountered the Cold War and things changed dramatically. So let's talk about the Cold War and the suppression of some of these ideas and the ideologies of the left. And it's something that I said to you earlier, as someone who studies the 1930s, uh, arguably you could say the, the interwar years, I, I do do a little stuff in the 1920s as well, but primarily I'm a 1930s uh, historian. I tend to... I don't want to say forget because that, that doesn't sound right, but at least I, I don't think about it often, the way in which a lot of these ideas were suppressed in the Cold War and how the Cold War really made leftist ideology dangerous for for people in, in a variety of different ways. So how does the group try to respond to that or in what ways were they actively being suppressed? In about, it was about 19... 19- 48. So the Cold War is well underway. It's becoming much more acceptable for the liberal government of Mackenzie King to take an overtly repressive approach to communist left and to the CCF left as well, to some extent, just because, you know, circumstances internationally have changed. So Mackenzie King wanted to be seen as sort of even handed and like a genuine small L liberal uh, who could tolerate many different ideas. But uh, the Cold War is, I think, one of the arguments here is that it's just too convenient for governments who've made many, many promises during the war about what's going to happen to ordinary people when the war is over and the, the rewards of being in the war. There's going to be job security. There might be full employment. There's going to be high and rising standard of living. And it was hard at that point to deliver on those promises. So governments, including kings, needed mechanisms to reduce those expectations. The Cold War is certainly part of what that is. So the Cold War comes along and it's, you know, they're able to demonize these women by identifying them as communists, which a number of them certainly were, not every one of them. Um, some of them were just part of uh, maybe the broad communist left or the broad community left. 
but some of them were certainly Communist Party members. And not not covering that up, not ashamed of that, proud of that. That's that's a courageous thing to do at any time. It has never been that easy to be part of uh, you know that left party. But they were able to um, completely neutralize their femininity. So they aren't really housewives. They're communists. And one of the dominant rhetoric that comes out of this is that because they're women, the deceit is all that much more shocking and offensive that, you know, here they are pretending to be nice, respectable women. And in fact, they're actually communists. And it became very difficult for people who were not on the left, who had not been political, and lots of their supporters were in that category, to continue to be supporters, continue to go to their demonstrations and and marches and sign their petitions and so on, uh, because they were vilified publicly. But this is, in fact, the strategy of the Cold War. It's to shame people and to vilify them and to silence them. A strategy that we see at work, I think, very much today as well. It's a very effective strategy if you have an, a popular opposition that you would like to silence. It works. People are run from it because it matters to us how people perceive us. But I'm curious to know, how does that square with what happened during the war? You mentioned earlier that a lot of the, the women were doing work as price checkers and a lot of the policies that the government put in place during the war were in line with what these women were advocating for. And how does the how does it get presented that this 180 degree turn away from these things, which were successful during the war? Like if I'm if I'm the organization, I'm saying these policies helped win us the war because that's the way the government presented them during the 19, early 1940s. During the war, they're saying Things like, you know, we have to preserve all this stuff. It's all part of the greater war effort. We have to win the war. So if that's how it's presented during the war, how does it square that immediately after you see such a dramatic turn? I'm just curious as to how the social and political vocabulary could change so quickly on these organizations and and what recourse the women potentially had against such an obvious change in policy. Right. And they did. They argued back. They said things like, well, if, if all of us are communists, there certainly are an awful lot of communists in Canada, says one of them. You know, it's like, you think, of course, it's a, it's a very marginal party. People like the ideas. Many people like many of the ideas promoted by the Communist Party, which were often the very same ideas promoted by the CCF, the more moderate, if you like, party of the left. So they did argue back, but the, the effectiveness of the Cold War, I think it's hard to overstate it. So how were they portrayed? Well, those communists, they're so devious. They dupe you. And the, and the deluge of anti-communist rhetoric in the mainstream press and also places like the Financial Post and so on just becomes deafening. It becomes very difficult for people, even liberals, Communists were involved in human rights organizations, the early human rights organizations. Well, human rights organizations kicked out all their communist supporters because it just became too dangerous to be associated with them. So there is this, it's like, you know, maybe like the COVID pivot or something, because suddenly things change so dramatically that it becomes, uh, oh, we were fooled. Those communists are tricky. They're, you know, especially those women. Yeah, and it certainly doesn't help either when a lot of pop culture is demonizing communists as well, right? There's a communist behind every door in movies and uh, radio shows, early television. It just permeates every 
aspect of life. And you're, you're right that it's hard to come back from that. But it also leads me to this idea of how the Canadian movement distinguished itself from the American movement and the legacy of those, because a lot of the cultural things that I think about from this era are American made. And yet here in Canada, the process through which a lot of these voices were silenced or attempted to be silenced were quite different. So how do we distinguish the role or success of these advocates in Canada versus maybe the more popular or widespread understanding of how it played out in the United States? Yeah, it's very interesting. I think, yeah, well, the United States successfully silenced its left. Their Cold War, I wouldn't say that it was more vigorous than in Canada. It was certainly more public. Canada's Cold War was a lot more covert. The state did not have show trials like it happened in the United States. So we didn't have the popular McCarthyism in the same way. So people were denied jobs and, uh, you know, denied security clearance, lost their jobs in the public service and so on, um, hounded out of their labor unions, uh, silenced, you know, in, in these kinds of popular ways in the, in the media and so on. But what's interesting is that the ideas which had been made popular by this activist left in the 30s and 40s, the popularity of the left had forced the mainstream parties, particularly the liberals, to adapt them, they had to, um, we see this today, they adapted their programs to embrace some of the same things on a, in a modified form that had been so popular on the left. So we got, today in Canada, we have publicly supported post-secondary education that in a way that it's not really so available in, in the U.S. They have a double system. And even so, even in the, their public university system, it's barely affordable to many people, whereas Canada, we managed to hang on to that. We have Medicare, one of the great things that makes us Canadian, who pushed for publicly funded uh, medical insurance. Of course, it was the left that did that. We have, you know, all the kinds of social safety net, all the provisions that we have in Canada provided publicly, provided by the state that uh, are not so well provided for in the U.S. and are often provided only by private organizations, often religious organizations. So Canada became a very different country. Because its left was so popular, because it wasn't actually squelched, and I think partly because the CCF and UP managed to withstand the Cold War and continue to promote those left ideas. But those ideas were already part of the Canadian consciousness, the Canadian political discourse through the 30s and 40s when we had this really active and um, energetic left that managed to get, well, why would people not agree with these things? You know, these are things that I think today we agree with. Yeah, I, I for the most part, you're right. I, I agree that a lot of the policies, a lot of the ideas that they're pushing for are things that would get very widespread popular support today, which leads me to the question of political consumerism or political materialism, which is kind of at the core of everything that's going on, where essentially, it's to me at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these ideas are the ability of individuals to express themselves, to have agency in the political process through their spending and what they choose to buy and consume. And that strikes me as something that is incredibly powerful and increasingly powerful as, at least for me, the way in which democracy works in this country is kind of challenging as we continue with the first past the post system, because I grew up in a riding that has been conservative my whole life. 
and will likely be conservative for a long time. There's no evidence to the contrary. And what that would mean is anybody in that riding who doesn't want to vote for the Conservative Party of Canada, it's hard to really get a lot of enthusiasm. So all that's left is spending your money in a way that provides you agency in some sort of political process, whether that is not buying from companies who support causes you don't believe in or vice versa, only going to companies that are, whether it's small and local or organic or whatever it is that you support is going, going to that. And how much of those ideas of political consumerism and political materialism are born out of this era and these women really pushing forth some of those ideas? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think you agree completely that we we're often encouraged to think of, you know, voting as kind of the essence of democracy, um, the essence of our political participation. And of course, it's, it's you know, as we see, it's, you know, we have very limited power as voters. You know, we vote among a number of, you know, usually elites who, you know, we don't necessarily like very much anyway, and we have a limited choice and it's every four years and they do, they are, don't necessarily answer to us directly on a day-to-day basis anyway. But there's a lot more to politics than just voting. And I think we, we do tend to forget or negate those other ways in which we participate politically. And certainly mass social movements make a difference, uh, have always made a difference. That's how we, you know, one of the ways that we change the world collectively is in those movements. And uh, I, those consumer activism has always been a part of the repertoire of those social movements. So we think about things like food security or food justice movement, uh, which, you know, has a lot to do with, uh, you know, one of its mechanisms is what we choose to buy, you know, how we choose to spend our consumer dollars. The climate change movement, well, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get off fossil fuels. You know, we're trying to push for alternatives. So we need structural change because we don't live in a world where it's possible at the moment to live without fossil fuels. So there's a consumer element to that. We need to be provided with ways. We need a different infrastructure so that we don't have to drive in our individual cars across. Like Winnipeg is full of cars. It's a car city here. Um, and it's very hard to take the bus to work or take the bus to school. It's just not, the city's not set up that way. And lots of cities work like that. We have the anti-sweatshop movement, which is essentially a consumer movement. But this is not a recent history. I think activist consumers go back as long as we have, you know, history like the 17th and 18th century food riots that women participated in, that's a consumer movement. They're, you know, they're saying the price of food is outrageous, it's unreasonable, and so they overturn the carts and and uh, pay what they think is a fair price and then take the food. I mean, so this has been going on for for centuries, really. I think absolutely right. So like the way that we act are active in the political realm as consumers has a very long history and it's a very uh, important history because it is one of the ways that we change the world. And how do we distinguish that consumer activism versus maybe the idea of a free or open market? Because I, I can see somebody listening to this and saying, well, if enough people feel this way, that is actually the open and the free market doing what it's supposed to be doing. So if enough people don't want want to purchase something from a company that supports a certain cause, 
then either they won't they they just won't do that again or they won't be successful and that is in fact the free market so therefore we don't need that type of government intervention so what is the distinguishing factor between political activism and the free market i don't actually think that we have the free market. I think this, this this idea of the sort of free unfettered market is a little bit of a myth. The state always intervenes in markets, uh, maybe not so much in the 1910s and 1920s as it has since then, but it does in, in lots of ways. You know, so we have like extensive government spending to support business in various ways. It's not always visible to all of us, but that's an intervention in the market. Absolutely, it is. People want maybe the government to change its policies, but but government is always involved in that. The the, the Bank of Canada is setting is setting interest rates in ways that affect you know whether businesses invest or whether they spend. It's 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 constant. We have egregious examples like um, Martin. Okay, I have a problem with his name. Uh, Screlly, the the Turing Turing Pharma. Oh yeah, the, the pharma the pharma bro. Yeah, the pharma bro, right? And like there was a congressional committee to investigate him, and he got. I think he's in jail. Um, he's yeah. not the only one. There were like big controversies and and government intervention in various ways. The EpiPen pricing, price of insulin has gone up, and governments intervene regularly. So they sometimes intervene to keep prices down when they're perceived to be egregiously unreasonable. But most of the time, they buy pipelines and things like that. So I don't know how this is a free market. Uh, Obviously, there's government in there all the time. And it's I mean, it's part of government's job is to promote the uh, health of the economy. And we all need that under capitalism, you know, until things change. um, That's the world in which we live. But there is no free market, I think. That's, um, you know, there is government involvement in supporting business in so many different ways that it's almost hard to keep track. So what do you think the ultimate legacy is of the movement and the battle over prices during this era from the start in 37, as you talk about, into the Cold War? What is the legacy of it? And what do you think people who read the book will ultimately take away from the work? Well, I guess two things about that. I think we are a a nation very much shaped by very complicated history, which in which ordinary people played a big role, mostly on the left. So, you know, until fairly recently, most working people would have thought of themselves as working class, would have identified their interests as working class and would have distinguished their interests from the other classes, the the class of owners, right, the capitalist class and the business owners and so on. So I think the the country that we have, our social supports and so on, very much reflect that that notion. And it's a collectivist history as well. And that distinguishes also, us also from the United States, which uh, I think people tend to see themselves as kind of a social myth that they're all a bunch of independent individuals. And I think Canadians perceive ourselves as in a, in a more collectivist way and with a more with a less adversarial relationship to the state as well. So I think that's one of the things that this is certainly a part of that bigger history in which, you know, the a very popular left played a significant part. And I think the other part is that um, we also tend to sort of think of, you know, the world is shaped by these prominent, you know, elite men. And here we have an example, one of many, of, of a broad social movement in which women were most prominent. And you know, women played really important role 
in shaping the country in the way that it is and shaping the world that we live in today. And the many things that we appreciate about being Canadian, um, without being sort of chauvinistic or nationalistic about it, I think we have um, a gentler, more kind society than many others. And I think that that's um, in large part due to the activism of ordinary people over the past century or so. Then it's laid out very nicely in Radical Housewives, Price Wars, and Food Politics in Mid-20th Century Canada. So where can people find the book and where can people find more information about you and your work? Well, <laughs> um, so you, the book is um, University of Toronto Press and you can buy it uh, directly from them if you're not going out to stores these days. Um, you can, If your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can probably order it. So I think it's, um, and I'm sure UFT Press would be very happy to send you a copy. And me, I'm on the U of M website, University of Manitoba website. I have to say over the past six months, for people who don't, like when I hear people are like, yeah, I don't do social media, anything like that. I have to say, I kind of envy that. Oh. Well, I'm on <laughs> As Facebook, it seems to have gotten right? much, much worse. I'm a lurker. <laughs> well uh, we encourage everybody to go check out the book and julie guard thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much sean it's been a pleasure so there you have it my conversation with julie guard and my thanks to her for joining me all the way from winnipeg again the book is radical housewives price wars and food politics in mid 20th century canada from her friends over at the university of toronto press So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do head over to iTunes, Google, wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, the ratings, subscribe to the show. Helps other people find us and keeps us going. You can also find all the episodes over on activehistory.ca, and you can head over there for some of the other articles that have been coming out this month. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, please do get in touch. Historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So we'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you.